0: Part 2 of Four Weeks in the Trenches This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by FNH. Four Weeks in the Trenches by Fritz Kreisler. Part 2 The artillery duel had died out with the coming of darkness, and we settled down to rest, half of the men taking watch while the others slept. At five o'clock in the morning our regiment suddenly received the order to fall in, and, together with two other regiments, was drawn out of the fighting line. Our commanding general had received news that an isolated detachment on the extreme right wing of our army, about fifteen miles east of us, had been entirely surrounded by a strong Russian body, and we were ordered to relieve them. It must not be forgotten that our men had been under a most incredible strain for the last three days, with barely any rest during the nights, and not more than one meal a day they had actually welcomed entering the firing line as a relief from the fatigues of marching with their heavy burdens. It is curious how indifferent one becomes to danger if one's organism is worn down and brain and faculty of perception numbed by physical exertion. It was, therefore, with badly broken-down strength that we started on this relief expedition, and it was good to see how unflinchingly the soldiers undertook their unexpected new task. All we had to say to our men was, Boys, your brothers are needing you. They are cut off from all possible relief, unless you bring it. Their lives are at stake, and as they are defending one of the most strategically important points, the right wing of our army, you can turn the tide of the whole battle in our favour. So go on.' And on they went, staggering and stumbling, and at the end of a few hours almost crawling, but ever forward. Suddenly we came up with another regiment, which had been called to the same task, and the colonel of the new regiment, being older in rank than our colonel, took command of the newly formed brigade of two regiments. My company happened to march at the head of the regiment, and the new brigadier rode for some time alongside me. I was deeply impressed by his firm military and yet unassuming bearing, and his deep glowing enthusiasm for his army and his men. He told me with pride that two of his sons were serving in the army too, one as an artillery officer and the other as an officer with the sappers. We were then approaching the point where we could hear distinctly the fire of our own batteries and the answer from the Russians, and here and there a volley of rifle fire. Our colonel urged us on to renewed energy, and knowledge that we were nearing our goal seemed to give new strength to our men. Already we were witnessing evidences of the first fight that had passed here, for wounded men constantly passed us on stretchers. Suddenly I saw the face of the colonel riding next to me light up with excitement as a wounded man was borne past. He addressed a few words to the stretcher bearers and then turned to me, saying, The regiment of my son is fighting on the hill. It is one of their men they have brought by. He urged us on again, and it seemed to me as if I noticed, or was it my imagination, a new note of appeal in his face. Suddenly, another stretcher was brought past. The colonel at my side jumped from his horse, crying out, My boy! and a feeble voice answered, Father. We all stopped, as if a command had been given to look at the young officer who lay on the stretcher. His eyes all aglow with enthusiasm and joy, unmindful of his own wound as he cried out, "'Father, how splendid that the relief should just come from you! "'Go on!' We held out splendidly. All we need is ammunition and a little moral support. Go on! Don't stop for me. I am all right.' The old colonel stood like a statue of bronze. His face had become suddenly ashen grey. He looked at the doctor and tried to catch his expression. The doctor seemed grave, but the young man urged us on, saying, Go on, go on, I'll be all right tomorrow." The whole incident had not lasted more than five minutes, barely longer than it takes to write it. The colonel mounted his horse, sternly commanding us to march forward, but the light had died out of his eyes. Within the next ten minutes a hail of shrapnel was greeting us, but hardly any one of us was conscious of it, so terrible and deeply were we affected by the scene of tragedy that had just been enacted before us. I remember foolishly mumbling something to the silent man riding next to me, something about the power of recuperation of youth, about the comparative harmlessness of the pointed steel-mantled rifle-bullets, which on account of their terrific percussion make small, clean wounds and barely cause splintering of the bone or blood poisoning. I remember saying that I had quite a medical knowledge and that it seemed to me that his son was not mortally wounded. But he knew better. He never said a word. Only a few minutes later, He was my only hope, and I can't express how ominous that word, was, sounded to me. But just then the command to deploy was given, and the excitement that followed drowned for the time being all melancholy thoughts. We quickly ascended the hill, where the isolated detachment of Austrians had kept the Russians at bay for fully twenty-four hours, and opened fire on the enemy, while the 2nd Regiment tried to turn the left flank. The Russians slowly fell back, but we followed them and a sort of running fight ensued, during which my regiment lost about fifty dead and wounded. The Russians temporarily resisted again, but soon the pressure from our other regiment on their flank began to be felt, and they fled rather disorderly, leaving two machine-guns, some ammunition, and four carriages full of provisions in our hands, while the regiment which had executed the flanking movement took two hundred and forty prisoners. Around eight o'clock at night the fight was stopped for want of light and we took up our newly acquired positions, entrenched them well, and began to make ready for the night. Orders for outpost duty were given, and the officers were again called by the brigadier colonel, who in a few words outlined the situation to us, thanking us for the pertinacity and bravery shown by the troops, and adding that the success of the expedition lay in the fact that we had arrived in time to save the situation. Then the question of transporting prisoners to the rear came up and while the brigadier's eyes were searching us, I felt that he was going to entrust me with a mission. He looked at me, gave me the order in a short, measured way, but his eyes gazed searchingly and deeply into mine, and I thought I understood the unspoken message. So, tired as I was, I immediately set out with a guard of twenty men to transport the two hundred and forty Russian prisoners, among whom were two officers, back behind the fighting line. They seemed not unhappy over their lot. In fact, were smoking and chatting freely while we marched back. One of the Russian officers had a wound in his leg and was carried on a stretcher, but he too seemed quite at ease, conversing with me in French and congratulating me upon the bravery our isolated detachment had shown against the terrific onslaught. As soon as I had delivered them safely into the hands of the commander of our reserves, I inquired the way to the nearest field hospital in search of the young officer, the son of our brigadier colonel. It was then about nine o'clock at night, and on entering the peasant's hut where the field hospital was established, I saw at a glance that I had come too late. He lay there still, hands folded over his breast, with as serene and happy an expression as if asleep. His faithful orderly sat weeping next to him, and some kind hand had laid a small bunch of field flowers on his breast. From the doctor I got the full information. He had received a shot in the abdomen, and a rifle bullet had grazed his cheek. His last words had been a fervent expression of joy over the relief brought by his father and the knowledge that the position would not be taken by the Russians. He had died as simply as a child, without regret, and utterly happy. I took the orderly with me, asking him to carry all the belongings of the young officer with him in order to transmit them to his father. When I returned with the orderly, the brigadier was issuing orders to his officers and conferring with them about the military situation. He saw me come, Yet not a muscle moved in his face, nor did he interrupt his conversation. I was overwhelmed by the power this man showed at that minute, and admit I had not the courage to break the news to him, but it was unnecessary, for he understood. The faithful orderly stepped forward as I had bidden him, presenting to the old man the pocket-book and small articles that belonged to his son. While he did so, he broke forth into sobs, lamenting aloud the loss of his beloved lieutenant, yet not a muscle moved in the face of the father. He took my report, nodded curtly, dismissed me without a word, and turned back to his ordnance officers, resuming the conversation. I assumed the command of my platoon, which in the meantime had been assigned to do some outpost duty under the command of the sergeant. I inquired about their position, and went out to join them. About midnight we were relieved, and when marching back past the place where the tent of the brigadier had been erected, I saw a dark figure lying on the floor, seemingly in deep sleep, and ordering my men to march on, I crept silently forward. Then I saw that his shoulders were convulsively shaking, and I knew that the mask of iron had fallen at last. The night was chilly, so I entered his tent in search of his overcoat, and laid it around his shoulders. He never noticed it. The next morning, when I saw him, his face was as immovable as it had been the night before, but he seemed to have aged many years. The next day was a comparatively restful one. We fortified the entrenchments which we had taken, and as our battle lines were extended to the right, from being on the extreme right, we became almost the center of the new position, which extended for perhaps ten miles from northwest to southeast, about eighteen miles south of Lemberg. The next few days were given to repairs, provisioning, and resting, with occasional small skirmishes and shifting of positions. Then one night, A scouting aeroplane brought news of a forward movement of about five Russian army corps, which seemed to push in the direction of our centre. Against this force we could muster only about two army corps, but our strategical position seemed a very good one, both the extreme flanks of our army being protected by large and impassable swamps. Evidently, the Russians had realised the impossibility of turning our flanks, and were endeavouring to pierce our centre by means of a vigorous frontal attack, relying upon their great superiority in numbers. Every preparation had been made to meet the onslaught during the night. Our trenches had been strengthened. The artillery had been brought into position, cleverly massed by means of transplanted bushes. The field in front of us had been cleared of objects obstructing the view, and the sappers had been feverishly busy constructing formidable barbed-wire entanglements and carefully measuring the shooting distances, marking the different ranges by bundles of hay or other innocent-looking objects, which were placed here and there in the field. At nine o'clock in the morning, everything was ready to receive the enemy, the men taking a short and well-deserved rest in their trenches, while we officers were called to the colonel, who acquainted us with the general situation, and giving his orders, addressed us in a short, business-like way, appealing to our sense of duty, and expressing his firm belief in our victory. We all knew that his martial attitude and abrupt manner were a mask to hide his inner self, full of throbbing emotion and tender solicitude for his subordinates. we returned to our trenches, deeply moved. The camp was absolutely quiet, the only movements noticeable being around the field kitchens in the rear, which were being removed from the battle-line. A half-hour later, any casual observer glancing over the deserted fields might have laughed at the intimation that the earth around him was harbouring thousands of men armed to the teeth, and that pandemonium of hell would break loose within an hour. Barely a sound was audible and a hush of expectancy descended upon us. I looked around at my men in the trench. Some were quietly asleep, some were writing letters, others conversed in subdued and hushed tones. Every face I saw bore the unmistakable stamp of the feeling so characteristic of the last hour before a battle, that curious mixture of solemn dignity, grave responsibility, and suppressed emotion, with an undercurrent of sad resignation. They were pondering over their possible fate, or perhaps dreaming of their dear ones at home. By and by, even the little conversation ceased, and they sat quiet, silent, waiting and waiting, perhaps awed by their own silence. Sometimes one would bravely try to crack a joke, and they laughed, but it sounded strained. They were plainly nervous, these brave men that fought like lions in the open when led to an attack, heedless of danger and destruction they felt under a cloud in the security of the trenches and they were conscious of it and ashamed sometimes my faithful orderly would turn his eye on me mute as if in quest of an explanation of his own feelings poor dear unsophisticated boy i was as nervous as they all were although trying my best to look unconcerned but i knew that the hush that hovered around us like a dark cloud would give way like magic to wild enthusiasm as soon as the first shot broke the spell and the exultation of the battle took hold of us all. Suddenly, at about ten o'clock, a dull thud sounded somewhere far away from us, and simultaneously we saw a small white round cloud about half a mile ahead of us where the shrapnel had exploded. The battle had begun. Other shots followed shortly, exploding here and there but doing no harm. The Russian gunners, evidently, were trying to locate and draw an answer from our batteries. These, however, remained mute, not caring to reveal their position. For a long time the Russians fired at random, mostly at too short a range to do any harm. But slowly the harmless-looking white clouds came nearer, until a shell, whining as it whizzed past us, burst about a hundred yards behind our trench. A second shell followed, exploding almost at the same place. At the same time we noticed a faint spinning noise above us, soaring high above our position, looking like a speck in the firmament, Flew a Russian aeroplane, watching the effect of the shells and presumably directing the fire of the Russian artillery. This explained its sudden accuracy. One of our aeroplanes rose, giving chase to the enemy, and simultaneously our batteries got into action. The Russians kept up a sharply concentrated, well-directed fire against our center, our gunners responding gallantly, and the spirited artillery duel which ensued grew in intensity until the entrails of the earth seemed fairly to shake with the thunder. By one o'clock, the incessant roaring, crashing, and splintering of bursting shells had become almost unendurable to our nerves, which were already strained to the snapping-point by the lack of action and the expectancy. Suddenly there appeared a thin, dark line on the horizon, which moved rapidly towards us, looking not unlike a huge running bird with immense outstretched wings. We looked through our field-glasses. There could be no doubt. It was Russian cavalry. "'swooping down upon us with incredible impetus and swiftness. "'I quickly glanced at our colonel. "'He stared open-mouthed. "'This was indeed good fortune for us. "'Too good to believe. "'No cavalry attack could stand before well-disciplined infantry, "'providing the latter kept cool and well-composed, calmly waiting until the riders came sufficiently close to take sure aim. "'There was action for us at last. "'A sharp word of command, "'and men scrambled out of the trenches for better view and aim shouting with joy as they did so. What a change came over us all! My heart beat with wild exultation. I glanced at my men. They were all eagerness and determination, hand at the trigger, eyes on the approaching enemy, every muscle strained, yet calm, their bronzed faces hardened into immobility, waiting for the command to fire. Every subaltern's officer's eye hung on their colonel, who stood about thirty yards ahead of us on a little hill, his figure well-defined in the sunlight motionless, the very picture of calm assurance and proud bearing. He scanned the horizon with his glasses. Shrapnel was hailing about him, but he seemed utterly unaware of it. For that matter, we had all forgotten it, though it kept up its terrible uproar, spitting here and there destruction into our midst. By this time, the avalanche of tramping horses had come perceptibly nearer. Soon they would sweep up by the bundle of hay which marked the careful measured range within which our fire was terribly effective. Suddenly the mad stampede came to an abrupt standstill, then the Cossacks scattered precipitously to the right and left, only to disclose in their rear the advancing Russian infantry, the movements of which it had been their endeavor to avail. The infantry moved forward in loose lines, endlessly rolling on like shallow waves overtaking each other, one line running forward, then suddenly disappearing by throwing itself down and opening fire on us to cover the advance of the other line, and so on while their artillery kept up a hellish uproar, spreading destruction through our lines. Simultaneously, a Russian aeroplane swept down on us with a noise like an angered bird of prey, and pelted us with bombs, the effects of which, however, were more moral than actual, for we had regained the security of the trenches, and opened fire on the approaching enemy, who, in spite of heavy losses, advanced steadily until they reached our wire entanglements. There he was greeted by a deadly fire from our machine-guns. The first Russian lines were mowed down, as if by a gigantic scythe, and so were the reserves as they tried to advance. The first attack had collapsed. After a short time, however, they came on again, this time more cautiously, armed with nippers to cut the barbed wire, and using the bodies of their own fallen comrades as a rampart. Again they were repulsed. Once more the cavalry executed a feigned attack under cover, of which the Russian infantry rallied, strongly reinforced by reserves, and more determined than ever supported by heavy artillery fire their lines rolled endlessly on and hurled themselves against the barbed wire fences for a short time it almost seemed as if they would break through by sheer weight of numbers at that critical moment however our reserves succeeded in executing a flanking movement surprised and caught in a deadly crossfire, the russian line wavered and finally they fled in disorder all these combined artillery infantry cavalry and airplane attacks had utterly failed in their object of dislodging our centre or shaking its position, each one being frustrated by the resourceful cool alertness of our commanding general and the splendid heroism and stoicism of our troops. But the strain of the continuous fighting for nearly the whole day without respite of any kind, or chance for food or rest, in the end told on the power of endurance of our men, and when the last attack had been successfully repulsed, they lay mostly prostrated on the ground, panting and exhausted. Our losses had been very considerable, too, stretcher-bearers being busy administering first aid and carrying the wounded back to the nearest field hospital, while many a brave man lay stark and still. By eight o'clock it had grown perceptibly cooler. We now had time to collect our impressions and look about us. The Russians had left many dead on the field, and at the barbed-wire entanglements which our sappers had constructed as an obstacle to their advance, their bodies lay heaped upon each other looking not unlike the more innocent bundles of hay lying in the field. We could see the small red cross-parties in the field climbing over the horribly grotesque tumuli of bodies, trying to disentangle the wounded from the dead and administer first aid to them. Enthusiasm seemed suddenly to disappear before this terrible spectacle. Life that only a few hours before had glowed with enthusiasm and exultation, suddenly paled and sickened. The silence of the night was interrupted only by the low moaning of the wounded that came regularly to us. It was hideous in its terrible monotony. The moon had risen, throwing fantastic lights and shadows over the desolate landscape and the heaped-up dead. These grotesque piles of human bodies seemed like a monstrous sacrificial offering immolated on the altar of some fiendishly cruel antique deity. I felt faint and sick at heart and near swooning away. I lay on the floor for some time unconscious of what was going on around me, in a sort of stupor, utterly crushed over the horrors about me. I do not know how long I had lain there, perhaps ten minutes, perhaps half an hour, when suddenly I heard a gruff, deep voice behind me, the brigadier, who had come around to inspect and to give orders about the outposts. His calm, quiet voice brought me to my senses, and I reported to him. His self-assurance, kindness, and determination dominated the situation. Within five minutes he had restored confidence, giving definite orders for the welfare of everyone, man and beast alike, showing his solicitude for the wounded, for the sick and weak ones, and mingling praise and admonition in just measure. As by magic, I felt fortified. He was a real man, undaunted by nervous qualms or by oversensitiveness. The horrors of the war were distasteful to him but he bore them with equanimity. It was, perhaps, the first time in my life that I regretted that my artistic education had over-sharpened and over-strung my nervous system, when I saw how manfully and bravely that man bore what seemed to me almost unbearable. His whole machinery of thinking was not complicated, and not for a moment did his qualms of weltschmerz or exaggerated altruism burden his conscience and interfere with his straight line of conduct which was wholly determined by duty and code of honour. In his private life, he was an unusually kind man. His solicitude for his subordinates, for prisoners, and for the wounded was touching. Yet he saw the horrors of war unflinchingly and without weakening, for were they not the consequences of the devotion of men to their cause? The whole thing seemed quite natural to him. The man was clearly in his element, and dominated it. After having inspected the outposts, I went back, bedded myself in a soft sand heap, covered myself up, and was soon fast peacefully asleep. During the night the dew moistened the sand, and when I awoke in the morning, I found myself encased in a plastering which could not be removed for days. End of part two. Recording by f n h. Please visit www.bookranger.co.uk